Father, it is a weighty thing every time we open your word. It is a weighty thing when we gather as a church to look at your word together. Knowing the promises that you have given us that when we gather in your name, you are among us, but also the solemn warnings. Um, I think of the book of Hebrews that we studied a few years ago, the solemn warnings that we must heed the word that is spoken. And so, Lord, I think of that not in relation to the things that will come out of my mouth, but the things that you have written on the pages of Scripture. Oh, Lord, I pray that they would become real to us, that they would be visited on our hearts with fullness of conviction, and that we would leave here with a higher and loftier view of you and a desire to walk the Christian life, to live this life that you have called us to in a way that brings you honor and glory, in a way that, as Paul describes it, is free of reproach and unstained. And we pray that you would do this in the name of Christ and through the work of your spirit. Amen. In the Fellowship of the Ring, um, the first movie in my favorite film series of all time, The Lord of the Rings, during the Council of Elrond scene, which is not one like one-to-one, not perfectly accurate with what happens in the book, but it's, it's pretty close. It's a good distillation of the spirit of the book, the spirit of that scene in the book. There's this moment where Boromir, the son of the steward from Gondor, is talking about how he wants to take the ring back to his home city of Minas Tirith and how he wants it to use it for good, how he wants it to defeat the Dark Lord Sauron. And Aragorn, um, you know, most people's favorite character, nobody likes Frodo that much, uh, Aragorn says, you can't wield it, no one can. And Boromir, being all snarky, turns to him and says, well, what would a mere ranger know about this? And full of indignation, everyone's, uh, everyone's favorite female character, Legolas, jumps up and says, this is no mere ranger. This is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. Um, and Boromir, struck with this information, says, so this is a Sealdor's heir. And Legolas says, an heir to the throne of Gondor, you owe him your allegiance. I bring up that scene as an example of a moment when a person's perspective of who another person is totally changed his view of their relationship and totally changed his view of what he owed that person. It didn't take as much as it needed to in that moment for Boromir, but in Legolas's mind, the truth of who Aragorn was should have had a profound impact on Boromir so that Boromir understood that he owes his allegiance, he owes his respect and even his obedience to Aragorn as the rightful king of his home nation of Gondor. We're coming to another pastoral epistle. We've been camping out in Titus recently as a church. Uh, Doug has preached a couple of times from First and Second Timothy. We're just hovering around this section of the scriptures where Paul is writing to young pastors and he's giving them information about what a church is supposed to look like. And what I want to do this evening as we look at this short benediction in the book of 1 Timothy is I want us to look past Paul and look at Paul's God. So we think of the scene of Aragorn, how who Aragorn was should have affected how Boromir saw his position. And I would propose to you that the way that we read Paul in the pastoral epistles, the way that we read his commands to us should be profoundly affected by who Paul's God is and by extension by who our God is. 
Um, we're thinking about what it means to live as a church, but I am reminded of the quote by A.W. Tozer in which he says, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. Who God is is going to have an impact on our Christianity. Our view of God is the determining factor in our Christian lives. Our, our Christianity corresponds with our view of who God is. So we're going to look really just at the, the second half of verse 15 and verse 16 of chapter 6 this evening, seeking to answer the question, who is the God that Paul is writing about when he gives these commands to Timothy? So our goal this evening together is to meditate on the king that we follow, that we might love our lives as his subjects, and we might feel the gravity of his precepts. So just to give a little bit of background on how it gets to this point in the letter, the pastoral epistles, all of them, um, especially here in 1 Timothy, um, they're written toward the end of Paul's life and ministry as a bit of a handbook on how to do church. They don't give us all the information. They don't tell us how to run an AV ministry. They don't tell us how to... Um, they don't tell us uh, how to vet our nursery workers, but they don't tell us how to you know, work through parking situations in places where we share parking spots, but they give us all that we need to understand what God requires of us if we are to worship him properly. Um, so there's a wealth of doctrine and instruction in these books. And in 1 Timothy in particular, Paul goes through what it means to be a pastor, writing to 1 Timothy. He describes in some measure what it means to be a church, and through that, he describes what it means to be a Christian. So ultimately, in this book of 1 Timothy, Paul is teaching his, his uh, young disciple, the one that had followed him through his missionary journeys, he's teaching him how to live as a subject of the king and how to teach other Christians to live as subjects of the king. So if we go all the way back to the beginning, we find Paul First, warning against false teachers. Um, I'm not going to belabor that point because Matthew addressed it this morning. But especially in these early chapters, 3 through 11, and then following that, Paul gives some autobiographical information that he talks about how he used to be an opponent, opponent to the cross as well, but the Lord saved him. And in light of that, he gives this charge to Timothy that he may wage the good warfare, he says in chapter 1. Following in chapter 2, the book describes a lot of what it means to pray and worship together. Um, it, it gives statements about the created order and how men and women are to relate in the church and who is to have authority and who is to speak in the church. Words which, frankly, have fallen out of popularity in modern days but are still as binding for us today. Uh, he gives instructions on the qualifications for overseers in the church. He even talks about how we are to treat widows in chapter 5, and he gives instructions for how to honorably treat elders. So in this section on widows and elders, even, we find kind of insight into what God expects of us, not just as widows and elders, because that applies to very few, but what God expects of us as biblical men and women. But interspersed throughout all of these instructions and all of this nuance about whether it's an old widow or a young widow, in this book we find interspersed these outbursts of praise to God, these little outbursts and descriptions of the work of Christ. So one that's very similar to the words that we'll be looking at this evening is in chapter 1, uh, verse 16 and 17. 
Paul says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the greatest of sinners, he means, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, throughout, the, throughout the epistle, we find these little bursts of praise that Paul just inserts describing Christ and his work. And so in this passage, these last couple of verses in this passage that we read together this morning, we find, find Paul turning once again sorry, to Christ. He summarizes what he wishes to say to Timothy in this final charge to fight the good fight of faith. And through Timothy, he gives this charge to the church and to Christians at all times, everywhere. He says in these final verses, in essence, in the name of Jesus, I am charging you to continue to keep this commandment that I have given you, to continue to uphold the gospel, to continue to fight the good fight of faith, to continue to carry out everything that I have told you up until this point, to keep it unstained, in other words, to keep it in holiness, to keep it unrebukable, until the proper time in which God will display and reveal Christ in his appearing. And then he inserts what is a bit of a change of language. He mentions that God will display the appearing of Christ, and then he enters into this section that's really almost like a bit of a hymn or a bit of a public confession. And you can imagine this letter being read to the church, and perhaps this was um, a liturgy that they were familiar with. Perhaps these words of the blessed and only sovereign were things that were familiar to their mind, and they knew, oh, we read these along with the letter. Or perhaps it was a hymn and they began to sing when he got to this part. Or maybe they stood. But this is an interjection of benediction to the God that Paul has just described before he says his final words. So this is where I want us to camp out this evening. This is where I want us to look and to meditate. Because here we find not just a final blessing, but a final revelation of Paul's source of authority. Here we have a reminder when he brings up the charge in the name of Christ Jesus, then describes God in these glorious terms, we're reminded that Paul wasn't just bringing a message from his own brain. Paul wasn't just coming up with instructions that he thought were good ideas. He was speaking with authority on behalf of God. He was charging Timothy on behalf of this great king. And so as we arrive at verse 15, verse 15b, if you will, let us look at the king. Let us look at this blessed and only sovereign, this blessed and only God. And as we see the God that Paul worshipped, let it transform our idea of how we approach 1 Timothy, how we approach 2 Timothy, how we approach Titus, and then keep going down the list, how we approach the Ten Commandments, how we approach all of Scripture, must be shaped by who God is. So look at what Paul says about God in this verse. Look at what he says about this king. The first description he gives is he who is the blessed and only sovereign. So for Paul, he wanted to remind Timothy as he gave this, this final charge to him that our king possesses exclusive sovereign kingship. Our king possesses exclusive sovereign kingship. He is the blessed and only sovereign, a word that means the blessed and only ruler. 
This is terminology of exclusivity. And think about it. In Paul's day, there were many rulers. There were the regional rulers of all the different places that he'd visit. There were the rulers of the cities. There were the rulers of synagogues. There were the governors, the pilots, the Herods that we read about in Scripture. And then you keep going up the ladder, and eventually all the way at the top was Caesar himself. So this claim that God was the only sovereign, the only ruler, is a radical claim of exclusive lordship that belongs to God, solely God alone. And in Rome, in that time, in the Roman mind, in the mind of the emperor and his subjects, there could be as many gods as you wanted to have. All the religions could live together in harmony for all they cared, as long as when push came to shove, they agreed with the Jews who crucified Christ and saying, we have no king but Caesar. So it's one thing to say that God is sovereign. They're like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Well, Jupiter is also sovereign, and you know, the God of the month on your God of the month calendar down in Athens is also sovereign. They're all sovereign, but just remember, we really have no king but Caesar. But what Paul is saying in this verse is that there is one king who is over all kings, including Caesar. So the only sovereign, and I would submit to you that in our day, it is no less radical or revolutionary to claim that Christ has exclusive rule, that Christ's kingship and authority is exclusive and belongs only to him. Even in the church in our day, in many quarters, it has to be said that when Christ's claims, when the word of God and his demands on our lives are pleaded against the views and practices of the cultures, it is viewed as an affront. It is viewed as an affront to say that God is king, not just here when somebody's preaching in a pulpit and not just when we're singing our favorite Keith and Christine Getty song, but when I wake up on Monday morning and go to work and when you go to school and when you have to make choices and when you vote, it is an affront to say that there is only one God, but it is true and it is what Paul is affirming here. He reinforces it with this term, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So to, not, so to God belongs full and complete sovereignty, so much so that Paul describes him as king over all of king, all of the kings and lord over all of the lords. So we might put it in our terms. He is president of every president. He is CEO of every CEO. He is um, the one who tells your parents what to do. He's the one that is sovereign and king over your bosses. He is sovereign and king over the mayor of Louisville. He is sovereign and king over Joe Biden. He is sovereign and king over the chairman of the Communist Party of China and the whatever that chap in Canada is named, or you take every earthly ruler under the sun, God is king of all of those kings. And it's important for us to note that when he says that he is king of kings, it's not just doesn't just denote that he is king of those kings by sovereign appointment. So he's the one that raises up kings. We know that that is true. We know that this, the heart of the king is a stream of water in his hands, and that's a great comfort to us to affirm that nothing happens in the highest authorities in the land, nothing happens in the White House or in Buckingham, well, not Buckingham Palace, nothing happens there anyway. Um, nothing happens in these seats of authority apart from God's sovereign rule. But God alone has priority over all of these kings. So at the end of the day, the buck does not stop with what does 
the lowest authority, you know, your mayor or the highest authority your presence say, but the buck stops with, what does God say about this? God has priority over every king, and so that Paul might affirm, he is king of kings and lord of lords. I mean, this is the basis that he gives for praying for our kings and rulers, knowing that ultimately God is king. So he charges Timothy in chapter 2 that prayers be made everywhere for those who are in authority. God ultimately will throw down every kingdom and authority that dares assail his throne, as we're reminded in Revelation that the kings of the earth will gather and they will make war on the lamb, but the lamb will prevail in the exact same terminology as used here. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. So God appoints all kings and all lords and all authorities. God is sovereign ruler over them and he has priority over them. But one thing that we don't often think about is God is also the ruler and king that all other kings and authorities will eventually answer to. So in a sense, though the nations rage, though they plot and scheme, though they sit in array of warfare against the king and against his anointed, the king in heaven still laughs because they do not sit in judgment over him, but he will eventually judge them. So this is critical to our understanding of where our allegiance should lie, knowing that though the rulers and authorities that surround us say we should answer to them, we know that they must ultimately answer to God. They must ultimately answer to God for how they have dispensed with the charge that he gave them and the rule that he gave them. And so as we look at the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who is sovereign over every ruler and authority. It should shape the way we read a book like 1 Timothy. It should shape the way we read Paul when he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. When he says that we ought to honor our pastors and we ought to provide for their needs. When he says that we ought to provide for widows, he is giving us this charge, not just in the name of Paul, the apostle who's dead and gone and turned to dust, but in the name of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the blessed and only sovereign. So God, the God of Paul and the God of this church is the God who is the ruler over all rulers. But second, he gives another description. Not only does our King possess exclusive sovereignty, but he possesses exclusive self-existent immortality. So it's one thing to say that he is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but he adds on this description that he alone has immortality. God alone has life in himself. We've already seen that he's already used this language in chapter 1, verse 17, when he's honoring the king immortal, the king of all time. So God alone possesses life that is completely unsupported. You might say, he's saying that God alone has immortality, but I thought all of our souls were immortal. But God is distinct. God is unlike any of us because, for one thing, God is the only being who not only will never end, but he never began. God is the only being whose existence goes, as Psalm 90 says, from everlasting to everlasting. So this blessed and only sovereign, there was never a time that existed when he was not sovereign. This king of kings, there will never exist a time when he is not king. 
He was king as much at creation as he was at the crucifixion of Christ, as he is now, and he will be 10 billion years in eternity. So God is the only truly immortal being in the sense that he had no beginning and he has no end. But all other things derive their life from him as well. So this king to whom we come is not only the king who alone has immortality, but he is the king that we receive our life from. We are derived beings. Um, We didn't exist at a certain point in time. And then when we did exist, when we were brought into the world, we had to have our parents there to keep us alive. And our parents kept us alive way longer than we're willing to admit. I mean, most of us have reached the point where if our parents aren't supporting us still when we're about 21, we don't know how to pay the phone bill. We're derived beings, but God alone is the being that truly grants life and truly grants immortality. So as it says in John chapter 5, Jesus saying, the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So God the Father is the one who grants life, not only to the Son, but to all things. God is the source of all life. There's a subtext in this passage in John, by the way, where it says the Son has life in himself, but it continues, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. So all will be immortal and will come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So God is the giver of life immortal. God is the giver of life eternal. But to some who are immortal, it's a life of everlasting judgment. And for some, those who know the Son and who know the Father who gives life to all, it is a life of eternal life and eternal joy in his presence. We can experience this life in one way, and that is through knowing him. So there is a distinction to this king that Paul is writing about. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, all other rulers pass away, but he alone remains. All other rulers borrow from his rule, and all other rulers are able to take life, but he alone is able to supply life, not only to sustain our earthly life, but to give us immortal life. So the God that Paul is preaching, the God that Paul is serving, and the God that Paul is charging Timothy to serve, and that he calls each one of us to serve and to submit our lives to, is the only all-sufficient, self-sufficient, truly immortal being. And so in light of this, in light of the fact that God is the one that gives us life, it should transform our understanding of God's commandments to us. The God who alone possesses immortality, the God who alone possesses life in himself is the God that calls us to come to him for life and to live a life that is pleasing to him. So seeing God as the one who is king over all things, seeing God as the one who alone has immortality should transform our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. We're not just coming to an earthly king. And we're not just gathering to agree on what the best ideas for how to have a church are, what the best ideas for eldership are, or what the best ideas for child rearing, what the best ideas for the filters to put on our phone are. All of those things are in submission to the king of kings and to the one who alone has immortality. 
And then he makes a third statement, a third statement of praise about this God. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He alone has immortality. And this final who is the one who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. And we might, we might read that and kind of question it. We'll say, well, um, Paul, didn't people see Jesus? Didn't people see God in the person of Christ? And haven't the, haven't the angels seen God? Um, doesn't it say in Revelation that we will see his face? Um, stay tuned. We're getting to that. It will explain in just a moment. So he describes God as the one who dwells in unapproachable light. So light, when it's connected with God in Scripture, is used to denote both his glory, his glory that no man can look upon and live, but it's a particular form of his glory, the glory of his holiness, the glory of his set-apartness. So whether it be Psalm 104, where it says that he wraps himself in light as with a garment, or whether it be 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 5, where it says God is light and in him is no darkness at all, there is this glory to God's holiness, this glory to God's otherness and his set-apartness that is so radiant that we cannot even look upon it. So this is a God who dwells in unapproachable light, and these descriptions complement each other. It's not two separate descriptions. The light is so unapproachable that not only can no one see, has anyone ever seen him, but no one even can see him. And think of how the angels themselves in Isaiah chapter 6 are described not only as covering their feet um, because of the holiness of God, but they cover their eyes because they can't look on the one that they are describing as holy, holy, holy. Think of how in Exodus when Moses desired to see the glory of God and God said he would pass before him, God reminded Moses, no one is going to see my face and live, so you're going to hide in the rock and then I'll remove my hand and you can see the he says the back parts of his glory, the skirt, as it were, of the garment of God's glory as God passes by. But we cannot truly behold God's glory face to face and live. So Paul is presenting this high and lofty view of God as the one who is fully holy. And so think about this for ourselves. Think about the one being who has never been stained with sin, the one being who alone is truly spirit, the one being who is so holy, it says in Habakkuk, that he cannot even look upon sin. And we who in ourselves are so drenched in sin, we who are so drenched in this sinful nature that we are utterly separated from God and utterly other from him, even so much to the extent that we cannot even look upon him, that no man can see him and live. No one has ever seen him or ever can see him. So this unapproachable light, this God that no one has ever seen or can see, has a glory, this cloaked in light, sovereign, immortal glory of the king and his beauty that can only be experienced one way through mediation. The only way that we can even know who God is because of his complete otherness, his complete set-apartness, is through mediation. And so that's why Paul can say in this same book, way back in chapter 2 and verse 5, that there is one mediator, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. 
So God does dwell in unapproachable light. This king is one that we cannot see, that we cannot look upon. But this king is also one that we can know. This king is one that has revealed himself ultimately through the person of his son, the person that Hebrews describes as the radiance, the outshining, literally, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and who Paul describes elsewhere as the image of the invisible God. So in light of this description, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, and in light of other statements in scripture, like the one in the prologue for John that Jeff read this morning that says that no one has seen God at any time. In light of these descriptions, we can say that everything we know about God, everything we experience about God in knowing him is through the person of Christ Jesus. Everything that we see about God is revealed through Christ. Even the vision of Christ that Isaiah had where the angels could not look upon his glory. That vision of God came through the person of Christ Jesus, Christ says in John chapter 12. And so Paul closes with this hymn of praise to God to remind Timothy of the nature of this eternally glorious God. And to remind Timothy that he should fight the good fight of faith and take hold of eternal life. Because eternal life is, our idea of eternal life is infinitely elevated when we realize what eternal life is. Eternal life is knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ who he has sent. Eternal life is being able to live in communion with the King of Kings, the immortal God who dwells in unapproachable light and unapproachable holiness. Think of the way it's described in Revelation. We see this promise of life with the invisible king where we see his face through the mediation of his son, through Christ being the sole revelation of God to people and the light of his glory fills all things. It says in Revelations 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, so no more of this sin and separation, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. It sounds like a contradiction with what Paul is saying here. Ah, but remember what Paul said before. Before he said no one can see him, he also said that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. They will see his face, and then in verse 5 of Revelation 22, and the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so I don't, I don't think that Paul wasn't thinking when he added this benediction. I don't think it was, um, I don't think he flipped through his worship manual and said, okay, so they're going to read my letter at church, so they need some benediction that they can read so that they know that they can get up and, you know, make a rush to Cracker Barrel. Um, or, you know, it was, it's the Middle East, so pita bread barrel, whatever it was they had back in that day. Um, I think Paul includes this description to remind us of the God that we serve, to remind us of the king that we are coming to when we come to a text like this and seek to submit our lives to it. And so again, God alone is the only sovereign, the only blessed sovereign. God alone is king of kings and lord of lords, 
God alone possesses life in himself and immortality in himself, and God dwells in unapproachable light and cannot be seen or known because he is so glorious and separate from us, but through the person and work of his son. There's a beautiful subtext to this, a beautiful subtext to reading that God is king and we have violated this king's rule, but we can come to this king through his son. The scepter of this king of kings is held out to us eternally in the person of Christ Jesus. God alone has immortal, self-sufficient, self-sustaining life, but we receive life. We can have life with this king forever, and we are sustained by his life through the mediator, through the person of his son. And God dwells in unapproachable light. God cannot be seen. God is other than us. God is separate. But God can be known and can be seen in the face of the outshining of his glory, the radiance of his perfection that is Christ Jesus. And so in the end, it is who this God is that changes the whole complexion of Christianity. And however frail my words may be, however frail the exposition of this text may be, I mean, if you wanted a really you know, good exposition of a text like this, you could flip through and find whatever 80-page chapter on God's holiness or God's self-sufficiency is in Stephen Sharnock's uh, Existence and Attributes of God. But however poor my exposition of this text may be, don't lose sight of the fact that First of all, learning and meditating on the person and nature of the Godhead is something that is, that is supremely practical for us as Christians. It's not something that we get through in Sunday school. You know, it's the first catechism question. You know, God is the spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, you know, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And then we move on to the other things. But we are constantly coming back to who God is. We are constantly coming back to the person and nature of God because it changes the whole complexion of what it means to be a Christian. And so in light of who God is, our lives, the entire complexion of our lives is changed and we can agree with the conclusion of this short hymn, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever. So Paul could have added at the end of this, so if these things are true of God, if he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the blessed and only sovereign, the one who dwells in unapproachable light, the one in whom life is, who else deserves your allegiance more than him? Who else deserves honor and eternal dominion more than him? And so I would plead that we agree with Paul, that we say, yes, honor and eternal dominion be to God and that we would plead with our own souls and tell ourselves no other object of our affection or our attention is truly worthy. No other king is worthy of our ultimate allegiance and obedience. No other life is truly worth living or seeking but the life that can be found in this king. And this is the life that can only be known through the mediation of Christ Jesus. And so, I guess in conclusion, I would say, come to this God. Come to this God who Paul describes as unapproachable by the one means by which he may be approached. Come to this God through his Son.
It doesn't matter if it's the first time you've approached him or the thousandth time. Keep coming and keep coming by the one well-worn path that exists to the throne of this eternal, immortal, unchangeable God through Christ Jesus himself. Don't wait to realize that God is altogether glorious and altogether worthy of your affection and obedience until it is too late. There will come a time when you will be raised, as Jesus says in John. You you will be raised to life immortal, but some of you will be raised to immortal destruction, and some of you will be raised to immortal life. And so I would plead with you, see the worth, the holiness, the goodness, the graciousness, and the beauty of this unapproachable God who dwells in light and whom no man can see and get to know him. And that's a contradiction in terms unless you get to know him through the one means that he has revealed himself through, through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And so let's go to him and ask that he would show us more of himself. Our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage in 1 Timothy. We thank you for the reminder that we have that you are Lord of all, that you are king of all kings, and we need not fret, we need not worry in light of the events that happen around us, knowing that they are within your hand. And God, I pray that you would cause us to grow in likeness to your son, cause us to grow in reverence for your holiness and in godly fear. And God, I pray that as we go from this place, our hearts would be warmed toward the love of Christ. And that we would...